1: The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Britons have really taken to the whole vaping thing. The country accounts for 40% of the whole European disposable vapes market. And that is big business. So why is this loosely regulated industry asking for more oversight? And the waiting is over. Our language columnist has settled on our 2023 word of the year. First up, though.
2: We've got grizzly bears all around Missoula now. We've got grizzly bears south of us. We've got grizzly bears east of us. And, of course, a lot of them, grizzly bears north of us.
3: Grizzly bears have lived on the Montana landscape since long before it was a state, and long before the town of Missoula was built.
1: Aaron Braun is our West Coast correspondent.
3: I recently visited Western Montana to see what bear country looks like. It's really gorgeous. Today is sunny and warm. There's really tall pine trees and larches whose needles are turning this golden yellow color. At one time, grizzlies roamed from Alaska way down to central Mexico. But they were killed off. In many states, they were wiped out completely.
2: The last wild grizzly bear in California was killed in 1922.
3: Chris Servine is a wildlife biologist who has spent his whole career working on grizzly bears.
2: You know, California had more grizzly bears than any other state when Europeans first arrived in North America, and now they're gone. And we don't want to do that in the remaining places where they are.
3: Eventually, in 1975, the federal government tried to stop their decline. That year, America's landmark wildlife conservation law, called the Endangered Species Act, protected the species and tried to help their recovery. Around Missoula, the law's success is becoming really obvious, and that means they're coming closer to people.
2: People feed their pets, for example, on the front porch if they've got dog food on the front porch or cat food, then the bears will find that and they'll start going to everybody's porch looking for food.
3: It's like Montana's version of a raccoon. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's just a big black raccoon.
3: (laughs) For now, they're mainly black bears, but grizzlies are coming into residential areas more and more frequently, too.
1: And how are the people of Montana dealing with that, that rise in bear numbers?
3: There's really mixed feelings about this. There's a lot of pride in the state. The grizzly bear is such an iconic species, and I think people are really glad that they're thriving. But there's some anger from folks who are worried that the bears are going to affect their livelihood if they're ranchers or farmers, for example. There's also a lot of fear because run-ins with grizzly bears don't always end well for the bears or for people. So it's really a mixed bag. When I was in Helena reporting this story, I spoke with a woman named Carly Johnson.
0: We had a female collared grizzly bear walk through our yard in broad daylight. And when I say through our yard, you know how like kids have bicycle loops that they ride? It was right across our four-year-old's bicycle loop. The only reason why he wasn't out there that night was because it was windy. It was terrifying as a parent to have a bear like that.
3: Encounters like this have reignited one of the longest-running political battles in the American West— And that's Republican states' ideological war against federal environmental regulations.
1: So wait a minute. This is an ideological war. What is it that Republican states want?
3: In short, they want control. Right now, the protection afforded by the Endangered Species Act means that it's a federal crime to kill a grizzly bear. States argue that all of these federal regulations get in the way of how they can respond to bear conflicts. In 2021, Montana's Republican governor, Greg Gianforte, petitioned the Fish and Wildlife Service to remove grizzlies in his area in northern Montana from the endangered species list. And I met him at his office in Helena and asked him why.
2: It's a Tenth Amendment issue that any rights not explicitly granted to the federal government are reserved for the state and the people. This species is no longer endangered. It has fully recovered. And we no longer need that federal protection. The state manages all the other wildlife in the state, and we're in the best position to manage the grizzly bears.
3: Wyoming and Idaho, two neighboring states, have sent similar petitions about their bears and the entire population of grizzlies in the lower 48, respectively. That latter petition was denied. But the agency could decide as early as February whether the bears in the other two ecosystems still need those federal protections. And for their part, federal authorities have been skeptical that those states will manage the bears well. The mistrust runs both ways.
1: So, Governor John Forte there is suggesting that the species is no longer endangered. What do you
3: make of that suggestion? Largely, scientists agree. The recovery that grizzly bears have made in Montana in these special recovery zones is remarkable. If you think about the greater Yellowstone ecosystem that surrounds Yellowstone National Park, at one point in the 1970s, there were 136 bears there, and they were nearing extirpation. Now there is something like a 1,000 bears in this ecosystem. So it's a really remarkable conservation success story But this debate about delisting the bears has lately transcended science. Montana's state legislature back in 2021 passed a couple of different laws that make it a lot easier to kill wolves and to kill black bears. And the Federal Fish and Wildlife Service has warned the state that those laws can also harm grizzlies and basically could affect this delisting decision. And Chris Servine, the bear biologist, he argues that grizzly bears would have a hard time dealing with the same kind of pressure that wolves and black bears are seeing.
2: Grizzly bears are not very resilient. They have a very, very low reproductive rate. And if you kill too many of them, their populations can decline very rapidly. And given what these state politicians are trying to do with wolves now, reduce them by 90% in Idaho, reduce them by 50% in Montana, giving those same politicians the management of grizzly bears would be very dangerous because while wolves are resistant and resilient, they can handle a lot of mortality. Grizzly bears cannot.
3: This impending decision that we're waiting for over whether the bears can be taken off the endangered species list is not going to end this debate. Past grizzly bear delistings have been challenged in the courts, but it's worth pointing out that The numbers of human-bear conflicts are not just down to the success of grizzly bears.
1: What, because the the, the people numbers are growing just like the grizzly bear numbers?
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. Jason, Montana's population is booming, especially for such a sparsely populated state. And ever more people are living right on the edge of wilderness, as I saw when I was driving around Missoula. You've got these houses that really back up against forest land. Like the forest is their backyard. I'm driving through gulches that look incredibly wild. Montana's human population grew by nearly 12 percent in the decade to 2022. That's almost twice the national rate. And when I talked to Governor John Forte, he thought this might be due to the popularity of the show Yellowstone on Paramount, which is a ranching drama that takes place in Montana.
2: At the point the internet gives you the ability to do, live, and work anywhere, people move to the most beautiful places. Mm-hmm. I personally think Montana is the most beautiful place, and I, a number of other people agree.
3: The tough thing is that some of these new Montanans are pretty oblivious when it comes to living with bears. A lot of scientists are particularly worried about airbnb that come into the backcountry and have no bear awareness.
1: So are there ways then for the increasing number of Montana residents and Airbnbers, I guess, to to live with the increasing number of bears rather than having these kinds of conflicts?
3: Yes. In Missoula, they're attempting this really grand experiment. Most bears are drawn into towns or suburbs by the presence of food, and they especially like trash. And so the city is soon going to require all residents that live in this bear buffer zone to have bear-proof trash cans. And there's bear safe practices that new Montanans can learn in case they run into a grizzly bear. And Chris Servine is trying to help them learn.
2: Don't hike alone because more people provide more noise. Uh, Carry bear spray, which is a very effective deterrent. It's non-lethal to bears. And then, of course, keep a clean camp, you know, if you're going to carry lunch with-
3: These attempts to live alongside bears Suggests that maybe the culture wars around grizzlies are less salient to Americans than to those seeking political office. And if Missoula's attempts to live with bears succeed, it could be a rare conservation bright spot in a world without many of those.
1: I can't bear it. I have to say it. Aaron, thanks for bringing us the bear facts on this one.
3: Anytime, Jason.
1: Even after Britain banned indoor smoking in 2007, the smell of cigarette smoke was never far away, wafting across pub gardens and lingering outside workplaces. These days, if you walk by where smokers congregate, you're just as likely instead to smell watermelon or bubblegum or blue razz lemonade. Britain has taken to vaping, that is puffing a vaporized liquid containing nicotine, like almost nowhere else. and that Well, that comes with problems too.
4: So almost one in ten Britons is now a regular or occasional user of electronic cigarettes. And the number who vape is continuing to rise. Duncan Weldon writes about Britain for The Economist. We're down to about one in eight Britons smoking. And on current trends, there'll be more vapers than smokers within two or three years. The industry is growing really rapidly. But back in October, the government announced a consultation into vaping. That's due to report this month, and many in the industry fear it heralds a tougher regulatory environment.
1: So before we get to what the regulators may do, let's get a handle on the trend itself. This is big business, I imagine.
4: Yeah, Britain has 4.7 million vapors and rising, so catering to their needs is, is increasingly big business. In fact, a report on behalf of the vaping industry reckoned at the end of 2021, It had a total revenue of about £2.8 billion, that's about $3.5 billion, and employed around 18,000 people. Now, that report was for the end of 2021. Less than two years later, the number of vapors is up by a third. So, you know, those numbers are probably an underestimate. And one research report this summer, found there are now three and a half thousand specialist vaping stores on British high streets.
1: So why is it growing so fast in Britain in particular?
4: There's a couple of reasons. Firstly, there's been a very sort of supportive stance from public health authorities. You know, the evidence suggests that inhaling nicotine through a vapor rather than burning tobacco smoke is much less harmful to you. It contains far less carcinogens. But many governments around the world, despite that evidence, have taken a very cautious approach. In Britain, for a decade now, the Message from the National Health Service has been very clear that vaping is better for you than smoking. If you smoke, you should start to vape instead. In fact, in April this year, the government announced what they called a swap to stop scheme, where they're going to give up to a million smokers a free vaping starter set to encourage them. It's the first scheme like that anywhere in the world. But aside from that public health message, there's just some economics as well. And over the last few years, we've had high inflation, a big fall in living standards in Britain. And lots of sort of hard-pressed smokers have looked at vaping and realised it's an awful lot cheaper. So, you know, a pack of 20 cigarettes in Britain at the moment costs more than £14. Pounds. Getting the same amount of nicotine and the same number of puffs from a, a disposable device costs about £5. Pounds. If you are using a refillable device, costs maybe half that again. So it's much, much cheaper. Things have been growing. The industry's been doing really well. But this new consultation, their fear suggests, you know, there's some sort of regulatory clamp down ahead.
1: So why this evident change of heart from the government? Why is the government seeming to go back on its earlier stance?
4: I think it's mainly to do with this sudden and explosive takeoff in the use of disposable vaping devices. The numbers really are quite striking. So material focus of charity – They estimate that about 360 million disposable devices will be used in 2023 in Britain. And that has doubled since 2022. One industry expert I spoke to recently said they think Britain accounts for about 40% of the entire European disposables market. They're very, very easy to get a hold of. There's almost no regulation on who sells them. So it's not just the vape shops. You can buy them in... Supermarkets, convenience stores, petrol stations, laundrettes, fast food places, but now both the local government association and the Scottish government have called for a total ban on disposables.
1: And that's only a move against the disposables because they're disposable.
4: Yeah, it's a couple of reasons. So Parge states that most of them at the moment are ending up in landfill, so you know, it's the environmental costs, but it's also there's been a lot of concerns this year about a rise in youth vaping, under 18-year-olds getting a hold of vapes who've never smoked before. It seems that young people are finding it much easier to get a hold of disposables than they are of refillable devices. Now, the law in Britain is quite clear. Selling vapes of any kinds to the under 18s is illegal, but enforcement is very, very patchy. There's only been a handful of prosecutions, a handful of fines. Now, interestingly, the industry themselves are actually open to more enforcement and more regulation. The director of the UK's biggest vaping store chain told me disposable devices are less than 15% of their revenue. What the industry wants is a licensing scheme. So to sell vapes, it would be similar to selling alcohol. You'd have to be sort of registered, proved you were only selling them to the right people. It would be easier to check. And they want automatic fines of up to £10,000 for anyone selling illegal vapes or selling vapes to under 18s.
1: Why though? They're, they're making money hand over fist. Why do they? Please, please regulate us. Like in some industries, you almost understand it. this is not so obvious.
4: Yeah, well, I think what the industry really doesn't want is, you know, a sudden and large crackdown. You know, they're very open to regulation. They're very open to tougher fines for selling to under 18s. They don't want, you know, this entire sort of golden goose to go away because under 18s are getting a hold of disposables. What they really don't want is the British government to follow the example of Australia, of some US states, and banning flavours other than tobacco. Now, the evidence suggests that even ex-smokers tend to prefer things other than tobacco flavours. One person at a recent vaping industry bash told me, just because kids are buying alcohol doesn't mean we should only be allowed methylated spirits to drink. You know, there are very few industries in Britain which have seen this kind of explosive growth over the last decade. There's very few industries that have seen a 30% rise in revenue in the last two years with this economic environment we've got. But really what happens next is going to depend a lot on where government regulation comes down.
1: Thanks very much for your time, Duncan. Thank you. It's that time again. It's time for the Word of the Year, our annual award show with only one category. Back to present the nominees for The Economist's Word of the Year, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our stage, our Johnson columnist and language expert, Lane Green. Lane, hello. Thank you, Jason. Now, first of all, um, how is it that you come by the Word of the Year every year?
5: Well, believe it or not, I don't know all the words in the world, neither all the words in English nor all the places in the world that have other words. So before naming a word of the year, as always, I talk to my colleagues to find out what those who are working in different fields and in different countries were talking about. And that's always a good reminder that the world is a lot bigger than just the English language.
1: Well, let's get straight into it to the shortlist. What word is your first nominee this year?
5: Well, our first nominee comes from a colleague on our Africa desk. Our senior Africa correspondent suggested coup as the word of the year. True enough, there have been several coups in West Africa, but honorable mention goes to a word that will be new to many of our listeners, which is the Yoruba verb japa. It's used in Nigeria to mean making a kind of quick and maybe creative escape from a sticky or difficult situation. But more recently, it has been extended by Nigerians to mean something like escape from Nigeria itself, which is to say emigrating from the country, which has been perennially plagued by corruption and misgovernment. Okay. Whipping through the shortlist then, second nominee and where it came from? Well, now we're moving east to China, where my colleagues highlight, you might call it a phrase, though boundary between word and phrase is sometimes a bit fuzzy but it is Wei Lo, that is Mandarin for rotten tail building. Ordinary Chinese, rather than being obsessed with the geopolitical question of China and Taiwan that we're talking about quite so often, are they're really much more interested in the collapse of their own property sector in China. And that includes, of course, many people who have bought apartments while still unfinished, only never to see them finished. So they call these shells of buildings rotten tail buildings where they haven't been built. The government has pushed back and promises bao jiao lo, what they're calling guaranteed delivery buildings. And in these cases, the developers are being forced by the government to complete those projects. Okay,
1: and our third nominee?
5: Well, as you can imagine, nothing can stop technology from dominating this year's words of the year. This is the year of artificial intelligence and not just any kind, but what uh, is called generative AI, the kind that can churn out text or images or video given sometimes only very simple prompts. So honorable mention in my thinking on this uh, was to the word generative itself, since this is the new element of AI that most people are talking about. But one word in particular has been on the lips of everyone from school teachers to cab drivers wondering what all the fuss in AI is about, and that's because of the launch in late 2022 of the most well-known AI of them all, the one that everyone's talking about, which is ChatGPT, which put me into a bit of a crisis. A crisis in the word of the year deliberations do go on? Well, a lot of people will say that a name cannot be a word of the year. Is a name even a word after all? But in the end, I decided that, yes, of course, names are words, uh, more specifically, they're nouns. You might have learned them as as proper nouns back in school. And there's no doubt that ChatGPT is the thing everyone is talking about this year. Google searches for ChatGPT are more than 90 times as frequent as those for generative AI, which I considered as my word of the year, or for large language model. ChatGPT is an example of a large language model or a program using a large language model, but that's not the word that's on everyone's lips. Everyone's talking about ChatGPT, ChatGPT, ChatGPT. As some listeners know, I I work in Spain, and I can tell you that ChatGPT is the same in every language, Spaniards are talking about it with the same curiosity, enthusiasm, and sometimes anxiety as they are in the English-speaking world. And that goes for many other countries as well and in many other languages.
1: Okay, so our runners and riders include Ku, Lanwe Lo, and ChatGPT. Elaine, do 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 you have an envelope to hand?
5: I do, in fact, Jason. Let's reveal the big winner. What is the word of the year? Jason, the people have spoken with their overwhelming interests, and it is impossible for me to pick anything other for Johnson's word of the year than ChatGPT. And the reason I chose ChatGPT is that just as Google has become sort of a stand-in for any generic search engine, we say, oh, I'm going to Google that, even if you use Bing or some other search engine. ChatGPT has become the conversational stand-in for any large language model. People will say something to you like, oh god, what an awful breakup text. Did he have ChatGPT write that for him? So people won't use Bard or Llama or one of the other no doubt excellent uh, large language models chat gpt is become almost a generic in the same way that words like kleenex and hoover and frisbee and dumpster all of which began life as trademarks are now used as generics very often in the english language
1: the people have spoken but i know that you think about these things a lot lane do you concur with the the people's choice for this
5: well, making predictions is difficult in technology and in language. I've gone with a uh, prediction on both here. I think in 10 years, we may not be talking about chat as dominating the sector, but I think this will be the year that we were all talking about it. Even looking back, I'm confident this feels more 2023 than any other word that I could have possibly chosen.
1: And who knows in those years, while it may fall out of favor, our whole business may do so and large language models may just obviate the whole podcast business. Let's hope not.
5: Let's hope not indeed, Jason. Thanks for your time, Lane. Talk to you in a year. Talk to you then.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Rory Galloway and Sarah Larniuk. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Kevin Kaners and Maggie Kadifa, and our assistant producer is Henrietta McFarlane, with extra production help this week from Emily Elias and Benji Guy. We'll all see you back here tomorrow for The Weekend Intelligence.